God, we ask now that you would use your word to feed your sheep and tend your lambs. Lord, while your word is preached, we pray that you would lead us beside still waters and restore our souls and comfort us with your rod and staff. And we pray also that you would teach us and correct us and train us for righteousness and equip us for every good work. God, we pray that you would make us wise for salvation and how to live worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And we commit this time to you and we, we lift our souls to you. And we pray that you would work in our hearts by the power of the Spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you don't have much time left to try and care for people that you really care about, what you do with them really matters. And that's what makes the actions of Paul in Acts 20 so instructive for us. We've spent the last, last several months in our verse-by-verse study of Acts, hearing how the Lord Jesus worked through his apostle Paul to take his word across the Roman Empire. And the last seven chapters of Acts have described three missionary journeys of Paul. And he preached the gospel throughout uh, the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia and Galatia and Asia. And God saved many people in all those places. So Paul planted churches across those regions. And in today's passage, Paul does something of a farewell tour through these areas. And he is starting a new chapter in life and ministry. He's now aiming for Jerusalem in route to Rome. And we saw that last week, Acts 19.21 introduces this new and final section of Acts. Acts 19.21 said, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then in our scripture today, Paul does that. He passes through Macedonia. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And then verse 16 of chapter 20 confirms Paul was heading for Jerusalem. Verse 16 of chapter 20 says, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. You see, Paul's in haste. There's not much time he has left to spend with all these Christians and all these churches and these areas that he's given many years of his life to. And he realized that this short time he had left with these believers might be the last time he was with them in his life. Later in chapter 20, he's going to tell elders in Ephesus, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, but I know that you're not going to see my face again. And in the next chapter, he says, I am even willing to die in Jerusalem. He didn't know. And he's concerned about what's going to happen to all of these believers after he leaves. He says again in later parts of chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so I hope you sense how important Paul's interactions, 
with all these believers were on his farewell tour in Acts 20. You know, what would Paul do with them? What would he do for them now that his time is running out that he has with them? And the answer to that gives us priorities. Every believer should have if they would be spiritually safe and growing. That's what Paul was trying to do. And nothing focuses your priorities like the realization that your time is running out. And so as we walk through this passage together, you need to consider your own patterns of life and, and your plans for your future and make sure both are full of these parting priorities that Paul had for these believers. Another way to think of it, we draw from this passage aspects of what the life of an established believer should look like. Because here, Paul is not trying to evangelize the lost. He's trying to establish the saved. So, so they are spiritually safe and able to stand firm and grow and bear fruit for God even after he's gone. So the first need of an established disciple, as seen in Paul's parting actions is much encouragement from the word. Much encouragement from the word. Look again at verse 1 with me. After the uproar ceased, that is when the riot in Ephesus was over, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. This was his last act. He didn't say goodbye to Ephesus until he had encouraged them. Now verse 2 says Paul did the same as he passed through all the regions of Macedonia. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions, Macedonia, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And I think it's safe to say that what Paul did in Greece was the same thing that he did in the cities of Macedonia before, which is the same thing he did in Ephesus before that. He gave them much encouragement. In the beginning of verse 3 says Paul spent three months there in Greece or Achaia. Almost certainly that was the city of Corinth where he was. He was passing the winter months there when it would be difficult to travel to Jerusalem. Now when you think about needing much encouragement based on these verses, don't have an overly narrow idea about what this passage means by this word. In fact, some of you may be looking at translations that say he exhorted them. Or he gave much exhortation instead of encouragement. And that's because the Greek word used here is, is a relatively broad one. That can mean either urging someone strongly, like appealing and, and exhorting. Or it can mean giving someone courage or, or cheer or comfort. And, and in fact, the same word is used down in verse 12 at the end. And there it's translated as comfort in all our translations. So, so the idea here is a broad one. Paul is he's urging them, he's appealing to them, he's charging them, he's also comforting them. He's, he's giving them hope. He's exhorting and encouraging. He's doing the same thing we've seen previously in Acts. He's, he's exhorting Christians to continue to hold fast to Christ, even through the many tribulations that we must pass through to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's encouraging them that... that Christ will be with them as they did. And that Christ is already reigning and ruling at the Father's right hand. And that Christ died for their sins to bring them into that eternal kingdom. And see, through encouragements and exhortations like these, Paul is aiming to, to strengthen these disciples. And that's the word that's been used in Acts previously 
for what Paul and others would do when they would go back to other churches to try and establish them. Acts 15.41, he strengthened the churches. Acts 16.5, he strengthened the churches in the faith. Acts 18.32, he went from one place to the next, strengthening all the disciples. Acts 15.32, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Acts 14.23, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them. See, this is a pattern. Christian, this is what you need. Paul made this his first parting priority, to strengthen the disciples through words of encouragement and exhortation from God. He knew they needed it, and he knew they needed a lot of it. Verse 2 said he gave much encouragement. And, and, and more woodenly, in the original language, the verse says he encouraged them with much word. He gave many soul-strengthening words from God, appeals and comforts. Now, don't forget, these were believers who already had gotten a lot of that from Paul before this farewell tour. I mean, the churches that he's encouraging in these regions include Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Ephesus and Corinth. And he had given a lot of time and attention to these places. He had given a lot of words to these places. We have some of them in our Bibles. But before he said goodbye, he wanted to give them more, even much more. He'd, he'd actually already written 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians to these cities, and he went back to them in Acts 20 because he wanted to give more words of encouragement, more exhortation. And very likely, right, this, these are just the same truths. He didn't show up and say, Hey, actually, I've been hiding some really important things from you. No, no, he reminded them of the same truths that he told them before so many times. Because to be established in the faith, you need a steady diet of much encouragement from the Word. So are you getting enough? Acts 20 suggests you need a lot, much Word. If you will have the courage you need, and the comfort you need, and the strength of soul that you need, and the strength of faith that you need, and the spiritual attentiveness that you need, and the heavenly mindedness you need. To be established in the faith, you need much encouragement and exhortation from the word. Most Christians need more than they're getting. So don't overlook Paul's first parting priority. Let this affect the way that you live. Take in more from the Word. Personal study. Meditation on Scripture day and night. Spiritual fellowship with other believers. Discipleship groups. Accountability groups. Read, read good books. Listen to preaching and teaching. Eat more. The Word. Now, it seems Paul's original plan was to leave Corinth when spring came and sail directly to Syria, which was just north of Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us that that didn't happen. And why? Verse 3, there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. 
So, so instead of sailing east across the Mediterranean, he started walking north back into Macedonia. Probably what happened is Paul was planning to get to Jerusalem by the Passover. And he hoped that because a lot of other Jews would be flocking to Jerusalem at that same time. It's, it's a strategic time to be in that city for the sake of the gospel. But some Jews in Greece got wind that Paul was planning to do this, and so they made this plan to kill him on the way. Right? Just dump him into the sea in the dark or something like that. But by God's mercy, Paul learned about this threat, and he changed his course. He decided to go back up into Macedonia. And verse 6 says, Then he spent the Passover in Philippi. And then verse 16, which we read earlier, his new aim is to be in Jerusalem for the next big Jewish holiday, Pentecost. But now in verse 4, we see that as Paul continued this farewell tour, his travel party begins to swell. More and more begin to accompany him. Look at verse 4. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And then in verse 5, Luke, the, the physician from Troas, the spirit-inspired author of this book, he joins up with Paul once more also. And we know that because in this verse, the pronouns change. The book stops talking about what they did and starts talking again about what we did. The author enters the story. Luke joins the team. Look at verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Verse 6, but we sailed away from Philippi. After the days of unleavened bread, Passover, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul picks up Luke where he left him in chapter 16 in Philippi, and he joins the band. All right, see, Paul is passing through the lands of his old missionary journeys, and churches, as he does that, churches keep sending people to go with him. And this is actually a big part of Paul's plan for returning to these areas on his way to Jerusalem. He didn't only go to minister to them and help them. He went to be helped by them and have them join his ministry to others. And so this is a second priority we can see of an established disciple based on this passage. In addition to much encouragement from the word, we need significant involvement in ministry, significant Involvement in ministry. Verse 4, notice the people who accompanied Paul. The Spirit told us about the places that these brothers were from. Why? And so we could see that brothers from all of the major areas of all three of Paul's missionary journeys were now joining in on the mission. The churches in Galatia, Macedonia, and Asia who had all received so much from Paul's gospel ministry, were now themselves joining the ministry, going with Paul to Jerusalem. And I think this is probably how, uh, part of how, at least, Paul knew that these young Christians and young churches were established in the faith enough to leave because they had gone from just receiving and believing the gospel for themselves to, to now embracing the ministry of the gospel as something that belonged to them too for the sake of others. And we know from other parts of Acts and other letters of the New Testament that, that several of the brothers mentioned in these verses did minister with Paul in many 
significant ways. Now, the main reason these brothers went with Paul on this occasion was to go with him to deliver a large financial gift to the church in Jerusalem from their churches and minister to the saints there. And actually collecting these offerings from these churches in these places was, was a big part of why Paul traveled to Jerusalem from Ephesus, passing through Macedonia. Actually, if you look at a map, that makes no sense without further explanation. That's like me saying, I'm, I'm going from Fort Worth to Tallahassee, passing through Los Angeles. Uh, Jerusalem was this way, and Macedonia was that. So Paul went out of the way, on his way to Jerusalem, to pick up these gifts from these churches to take there. And Paul explains this in a couple of letters that he wrote during this farewell tour. He wrote 2 Corinthians during Acts 20. And in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm coming to Corinth to get the gifts you're collecting to add to what the churches of Macedonia have given for Jerusalem. And Paul also wrote the book of Romans during the time of Acts 20, during these travels. And he wrote about this ministry endeavor. I read that earlier in the service, Romans 15, 25, and 26. Paul said, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. You see that? What Paul is doing is, in part, he sees himself as helping to facilitate the ministry of these churches. The men who went with Paul in, in verses 4 and 5, they're like a little delegation of representing all the Gentile churches who were giving to the needs in Jerusalem. And that's helpful to know, uh, to understand Paul's laser focus on Jerusalem at this part of Acts. Because remember, Paul was called by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Why is, he, why is he laser focused on Jerusalem? Well, remember the other time we, we read about Paul going to Jerusalem after he began his ministry to the Gentiles. Well, what was he doing? The end of chapter 11. The same kind of thing. He's bringing a gift from the largely Gentile church in Antioch to the Jewish church in Jerusalem because they heard there was a famine going on there. And that famine relief gift showed the unity of the church, of, of Gentile and, and Jew. And this collection that's coming to Jerusalem shows the same, but bigger. Right? You see this? The gospel continued to expand to all these Gentile lands. And here, all of, all of these churches on the outskirts of the spread of the gospel are joining together to bring a gift to help the Christians from the original center of where the gospel went out, the, the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. So this shows us that, that still, still, and always, Jesus has one universal church that he's building on earth. And, and he is pleased and glorified when we act that way and talk that way and pray that way. Oh, okay, well, in, in light of these verses... Right, we see that a big part of how Paul sought to encourage these believers and establish them was by encouraging their involvement in this ministry of his. They had become significantly involved. They gave their money. They gave their friends. They sent out some of their best men. 
So here again, you should consider your own life in light of this parting priority of Paul. He went out of his way to stir up the believers and to secure the believers' significant involvement in this ministry. So this is a good question of self-examination to help you see if your roots are deepening in the faith, if your roots are getting stronger like they should be. Ask, are you significantly involved in ministry to others? In, in giving, in encouraging, in exhorting, in witnessing, in serving, in, in meeting needs, in praying. Right, does this make sense? To, to be established in the faith, to be spiritually safe and growing. You don't just need to be hearing a lot of the word. You need to actually be trying to do a lot of what you're hearing. And that will mean, among other things, trying to become significantly involved in ministering to others. So I want to encourage you very practically, if, if, you don't, if you just don't understand what that might look like very practically for you, to be significantly involved in ministry, I want to encourage you. Why don't you reach out to a couple of mature believers who seem to you like they're doing a lot of ministry and ask them to help you see what that might look like for you to be more involved in ministering to others. And, and what I bet what these mature believers might show you is that there are many ways that you already are involved in that that you're not realizing. Now I want you to think also about the flip side of this truth, okay? If you're going to join Paul in helping to establish other believers in the faith, you need to join Paul in encouraging other believers to minister. Ministry to other believers involves encouraging their involvement in ministry and equipping them for it. That's Acts 20. Now back to the narrative of the chapter, though. Uh, in, in verses 5 and 6, we, we saw the travel party split up for a short time, but then they're back together in Troas in verse 7. But here, the, the Spirit slows down the pace of the story considerably and zooms in on one very noteworthy night. And this event shows us an important pattern that had been established amongst the disciples by this time. And it teaches us something else. Believers need. That is substantial nourishment on Sundays. Substantial nourishment on Sundays. Read verse 7 with me. On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, or preached to them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, when else has the Holy Spirit specifically mentioned the day of the week that something happened in the book of Acts? Almost never. This must be important. In fact, the only other times I can think of is when we talk about Paul going into the synagogue on the Sabbath, on Saturday, because that was the day that Jews would gather for worship and prayer and, and especially to hear the scriptures read and taught. Now, this verse tells us the believers in Troas gathered specifically on the first day of the week because this had become a, a pattern for believers by this time in salvation history. Instead of Saturday, 
they had begun gathering particularly on Sunday for worship and prayer and especially to hear the scriptures read and taught and especially to hear how Christ fulfilled the scriptures through his suffering and subsequent glories. And by the time the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, Christians had already started calling Sunday by a special name, the Lord's Day. Revelation 1.10, Sunday was the day the Lord rose from the dead. That was enough for Christians to know, I love Sundays. And verse 7 indicated that on Sunday the Christians came together, what did it say? For the purpose of breaking bread. And that's, that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's the purpose of them coming together on Sunday. It probably also refers to a larger fellowship meal that, that the church would share in connection with communion. And the letter of 1 Corinthians is a good parallel to this. It shows the same pattern for the early church. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, it references the churches coming together on the first day of the week. Concerning the collection for the saints on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and, and store it up. When you come together for church, that's when you deposit these offerings that I'm taking to Jerusalem. Earlier in that letter, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, Paul gives instructions about the way they're to break bread, the, the way they're to take the Lord's Supper when they come together as a church. And, and, and in that chapter, Paul even equates when you come together as a church with when you come together to eat, the Lord's Supper and this, this fellowship meal. And that's the same thing we're seeing in Troas in Acts 20. The church gathered on Sundays to break bread, to do what Jesus commanded his disciples to do in remembrance of him. But that's not all they did when they gathered, is it? Uh, our uh, forefathers in the Reformation would like to remind us that the Lord's Supper is meaningless apart from the preaching of the gospel. And so here in Troas, most substantially, the believers spent their time listening to Paul expound the scriptures. Paul gave a very substantial sermon to the brothers in Troas. The extraordinary length of Paul's sermon was double underlined in this verse. It said it lasted until midnight and also said that Paul prolonged his speech until then. He extended his message. He just kept talking. And verse 7 explains part of the reason for that. He intended to depart the next day. I'm leaving on Monday. I want to make the most of this Lord's Day to, to establish the disciples before I leave. Now, don't get the wrong idea. This Sunday service probably started sometime in the evening. Uh, Christians who were slaves would still have to work on Sunday. So they couldn't come until their work was done. And that's part of the problem in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is that richer people were going ahead and starting the Lord's Supper before the poor folk had a chance to even show up. So Paul says, wait for one another before you eat. Okay, all that to say, it's not like Paul had been preaching from mid-morning until midnight. He probably started talking sometime in the evening. Oh, that's still a really long time, isn't it? And the believers in Troas were hungry for the word. They wanted to be fed and strengthened substantially this Sunday. Their main concern this Lord's Day was receiving substantial spiritual nourishment. They also wanted to make the most of this time, like the Apostle Paul. But even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is often weak. 
And so predictably, some eyelids started drooping, as we'll soon see. Verse 8 gives some details about the setting that help explain what was about to happen. Look at verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, the many lamps in this room means the room wasn't just bright, but it was also hot, stuffy. And that's a dangerous combination. An unusually long sermon in an unusually warm room. Do you know what that's like? That's a, that's a threat for irresistible drowsiness. Even if the Apostle Paul is the one preaching. And someone in that room started nodding off to sleep. It was a youth. And, and the Greek words that are used later in this passage to describe him typically refer to a young person between the ages of 9 and 14. And his name was Eutychus, which is Greek for lucky or fortunate, which is ironic, given what we read in verse 9. A young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, those of you who are smiling must know how this story ends. Uh, young Lucky, he, he may have moved to the window to, to try and keep alert, right, to get some fresh air, but those good intentions backfired in the worst way. But, but there wasn't really time for the shock of this tragedy to ever turn into real mourning because immediately what happened, look at verse 10, Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, don't get the wrong idea from that. He's not saying here that what we just read in verse 9 was wrong. And actually, he hadn't died from the fall. No, he died. This is another miracle of revival or resuscitation. He was found dead. God did another mighty sign and wonder through the Apostle Paul. He came alive again. His life returned to him. Now, we'll talk about the significance of this miracle in just a little bit. But first, I want you to look at what happened immediately after the boy's life returned. Look at verse 11. Paul, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. All right, this is amazing. Paul went down. He prayed for this person to come back to life. And when it happened, he immediately went back up to the upper room, and he kept speaking. He picked up where he left off. And it also seems, based on this verse, they, they hadn't gotten to the part of the service where they actually took the Lord's Supper yet, until after this midnight miracle. He had prolonged his teaching so much before, they didn't observe the Lord's Supper till the wee hours of Monday morning. And then after they did, what did they do? Verse 11 said, Paul kept conversing with them. He kept teaching much encouragement, uh, quote, a long while, this time until daybreak. This church service was an all-nighter. And then Paul left Troas, just like he planned, after a night of no sleep. Verse 12 gives us an encouraging update, briefly on Eutychus, reassuring us he's okay. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. 
All right, what do we see the believers in Troas doing? They're doing the same thing that the church in Jerusalem did right after the Spirit was poured out. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. Everywhere the gospel went, that's what believers did. And it didn't take long before believers were especially devoting themselves to gathering to do these things on Sunday, the Lord's Day. They were setting apart this special day each week for this special purpose. That is an important part of God's plan to protect and grow and nourish and establish his people. So how established in the faith should you expect to be if you neglect this clear biblical pattern? Uh, The example of the church in Troas presses on us for the need for believers to receive substantial nourishment on Sunday. Nourishment from hearing the word being preached and discussed. Nourishment from seeing the word, seeing the gospel in the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul encouraged and worked within this pattern in Corinthians and, and in Acts 20. And importantly, these verses should push you not just to commit to going to church on Sunday as you're able, but, but to seeking really substantial spiritual nourishment when you do. And we should all be stirred by the zeal of these churchmen in Troas. I mean, think about it. Why would Paul keep preaching all night? I, I refuse to believe that Paul was so uh, hopelessly out of touch with the people listening that they were all thinking, please, please stop. And he just didn't get the cues. No, he kept going because it was clear that they were hungry for more. 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 1 a.m., 3 a.m. They wanted more, more encouragement, more exhortation. They thought, maybe they said, Paul, we're here, we're already gathered for the Lord's Day. Let's make the most of it. Give us more. Let's eat and drink in remembrance of Christ again. More celebration of Christ. Let's share a meal together. More fellowship. All right, would you have fit in in the church of Troas on that blessed Lord's Day? You know, maybe you need to pray. And, And believers will need this from time to time in their life. But pray that God would give you a heart for what the church does on Sunday and give you a heart to desire to be nourished maximally by everything the church is supposed to do when they gather. God has given us his word. Christ has given us two ordinances. The spirit has put people for God together in one body. And the spirit does his good work in us through the word and the ordinances and fellowship, as all those things point us to Christ. And God, how kind of God. God has given us a special day to especially seek this each week. And so I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to seek it substantially every Sunday of every week God gives you for the rest of your life. And this, the Bible says this life is a vapor, which means, relatively speaking, none of you have very many Sundays left. Make the most of them.
Make the most of them. How you spend Sunday really matters. Not only what you hear on that day, but how you're trying to be nourished by it. And it matters. Not just how often you take the supper, but, but how you're trying to benefit from it in faith when you do. It matters how you spend the time when we're gathered together before and after the service. Let's make the most of it. I'm sure the saints in Troas never forgot this Sunday because of how long the sermon lasted, yes, but, but also certainly because of how Eutychus was restored. And we should ask, you know, this doesn't happen on every page of Acts. Why did God do this miracle on this day? Well, at least one good God had in mind was to encourage the believers there, I think including Paul, to strengthen the hope they had in the resurrection. Paul especially was about to need this for what lied ahead of him. And that's the next main point I want you to draw from this passage. In addition to the encouragement and the involvement and the nourishment that we've already considered, believers also need what God gave the church in Troas in a very special way as Paul was leaving, a firm hope in the resurrection. A firm hope in the resurrection. Now, even the specific posture that Paul had when he carried out this miracle of God was supposed to stir up this hope. All right, look at verse 10 again. Paul went down and bent over him. Now, more literally, he fell upon him. And taking him in his arms, embracing him, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. So he, so he threw himself down upon the young man, put his arms around him. Does that remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Well, the way Paul lied on him or fell on this lifeless boy is supposed to recall the way that the prophets Elijah and Elisha did very similar things. In 1 Kings 17, in 2 Kings 4, they revived young men from the dead with the same kind of posture. And of course, in, uh, more recently, it reminds us of how Jesus and the apostle Peter had also raised uh, a dead young person in ways that, that were reminiscent of, of those earlier prophets in different ways. So I think the believers are supposed to see what Paul was doing, how he did it, and think, oh, God has done this kind of thing before. God is this kind of God. Oh, yeah, we serve a God who raises the dead. We serve a God who has power over even death. He has promised to save us from death and from our sin whose wages is death. This is the kind of God God is. And, I think Paul would have pointed out later when he returned to the upper room and kept preaching, that this is the reason that we're all gathered here today on Sunday, the first day of the week, because God raises the dead, and He raised our Lord Jesus Christ on this day to finish our salvation and to begin the new creation. Uh, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, Lazarus out of the tomb, what was that for? That was to help everyone who was seen to believe that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. Like he said just before he did that. And he taught on that occasion that whoever believed on Christ, though he should die, yet shall he live. All who believe on Christ will have eternal life because he died 
for our sins and then rose from the dead. And the miracle the Lord did in Acts 20 should have accomplished something similar as that miracle with Lazarus in John 11. Believers would have their hope in the resurrection established even further. And again, I have no doubt when Paul went back up to the upper room and he kept speaking to the church that, that he preached in light of what just happened with Eutychus. They didn't just ignore that major thing that just happened, like that was possible. He spoke about the hope we have in the face of death because of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. And in the same way, I, I appeal to all of you now in like manner, on behalf of Christ, I appeal to you to respond rightly to what you've just heard about this miracle involving Eutychus. Believe on the risen Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for rescue from death, for rescue from the second eternal death. The wages of your sin is death, but Jesus who died for you is the resurrection and the life, and you have life and forgiveness freely in his name by faith. Now, Paul himself was about to need an especially firm hope in the resurrection. Remember what I said at the beginning of this sermon. The middle of chapter 19 started the last major section of Acts. Paul sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And throughout this final section of Acts, Paul expresses both his willingness to die and his hope in the resurrection. It comes up repeatedly. Those two things go together. Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value. Acts 21, 13, he says, I'm ready even to die in Jerusalem. And then in the scenes that follow, a lot of people try to kill him. And then in 23, 6, he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm here on trial. And in 24:15, I have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and and the unjust. See, threats to Paul's life and hope in the resurrection are major themes of where Acts is going next. And this miracle in chapter 20 helps us get ready for it. And it, it also helped to prepare Paul to suffer and witness faithfully and obey even unto death with great hope. You cannot live for Christ like you should without a firm hope in the resurrection. You cannot live the Christian life thinking that this life is all there is. Because the good kind of payback, substantially, that you receive for living the Christian life is in the life to come. What did Jesus say about those who gave to those who could not give back to them? He said they will be repaid in the resurrection. First and foremost, you need to hope in Christ's resurrection. And then because he rose, a hope in the resurrection of all his people, even, unto, even after death, a resurrection from the dead in glorified immortal bodies like his. So again, I want to encourage you. When you seek much encouragement from the word, this is something you should be looking to, to draw from the word, a firm hope in the resurrection. When we come together as a church, this is a big part of the nourishment you should be seeking. A firm hope in the resurrection. When we're, when we're singing hymns and there's a line about the resurrection, the glory to come, the resurrection of Jesus, 
Believe that. Sing with your heart to the people around you and to your own soul. As you pursue involvement in in ministry to others, this is the motivation you'll need to do that in significant ways and in sacrificial ways. You'll need to remember the resurrection is coming. So my labors are not in vain. The resurrection is coming. So, So I will be rewarded in the resurrection of the righteous because Jesus has taken away my sins and, and he rose to blaze a trail to glory with me. With him. Now, the last few minutes that we have in this sermon, I want to show you one final thing the Apostle Paul gave time and attention to. To care for these Christians he cared about before he left them. One other parting priority, to to establish disciples in the faith, to make sure they would be spiritually safe and growing, caring oversight from pastors. Caring oversight from pastors. That's what the rest of Acts 20 is about. So, So verses 16 through, I'm sorry, 13 through 16, tell how Paul traveled quickly from one city to another in a hurry to Jerusalem. So follow beginning in verse 13. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. And we get the sense from these verses, don't we? He's hastening. He's going from one city to the next, to the next, to the next. He's hastening so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. He's hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay. But even though he didn't feel like he had time to stay in any of these places, he didn't feel like he had time to make another trip to Ephesus, Still, at Miletus, he feels like he needs to use some time to address the elders in Ephesus. He called them to meet him at Miletus. See that in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then we'll look next week at the rest of the chapter, Paul's exhortation to these pastors. And here's the central thing he's going to tell them. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Caring oversight. Paul used the last moments of his farewell tour to try and make sure the disciples would have caring oversight from pastors. So this passage, the first half of Acts 20, it doesn't appear to teach us much at first glance, but if we put it in park and we sit and we patiently try to learn from these words of Scripture that God inspired, we are taught something very important. What should the life of an established disciple look like? And the parting priorities of Paul show us the major ingredients. A lot of the word, significant ministry, substantial Sundays, resurrection hope, and pastors who care, watching over your souls.
Now, these things are not hard to understand, but they are easy to neglect. But the disciples who will be most established in the faith are not those who figure out the deepest mysteries of the faith. They're those who are devoted to doing the things that the Bible is so clear about are good for our souls. The kinds of priorities and patterns that we see in Acts 20. God, we pray that you would help us to be those kinds of disciples, established in our faith, so that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so that we would not be pulled by every temptation of our flesh or the world or the devil. God, I pray that you would help all of us to repent where needed in light of this word. And I pray that you would encourage us much, encourage us much as we reflect later upon the truths of this passage. Encourage us much as we sing these truths we're about to sing. And we ask you would encourage us much as we remember the death of Christ at your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.